Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm pleased to be able to welcome you to today's policy forum on quantitative easing. At the height of the subprime crisis, just following the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the Federal Reserve began that great monetary policy experiment that is now known by the name of quantitative easing. The experiment involved an unprecedented increase, some $3.5 trillion in the Fed's balance sheet. What conditions and theories drove the Fed to take these unprecedented steps? What was QE supposed to accomplish? And what did it accomplish, in fact? These are the main questions our distinguished panelists will speak about today. Let me introduce them to you, starting with our two commentators. Joe Gagnon is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He's the author of Government Debt Over the Next 25 Years. And uh, he's been an economist in academia, as well as for the Treasury and the Federal Reserve Bank, where he was associate director of the Division of Monetary Affairs during the financial crisis. Scott Sumner is a professor at Bentley University in Boston and is also holder of the Ralph Hawtrey Chair in Monetary Policy at the Mercatus Center in Arlington. He is author of a recent book, The Midas Paradox, A New History of the Great Depression. And finally, <clears throat> You probably know him best, unless you've never heard of something called the Internet, as the owner and sole contributor to the highly popular macroeconomics blog, The Money Illusion. Finally, our main speaker, Dan Thornton. Dan Thornton was an economist uh, and a prolific author and vice president for more than three decades at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis until his retirement less than two years ago, I believe. Uh, he's also been one of the most outspoken critics of the Fed's recent unorthodox policies. Finally, and most importantly for us, he's the author of Cato's November 2015 policy analysis entitled Requiem for QE, which is the inspiration for today's forum, and which I'll now attempt to summarize in just 15 minutes uh, when our other commentators will then respond. Thank you, and welcome to our speakers. Dan. Thank you, George, and thank Cato for inviting me to come and present uh, a summary, but actually I'm only going to present a little bit of it because it's far too long to, uh, and too detailed. So let's get to work. I'm going to talk a little bit about the post-financial crisis and the pre-Lehman policy, and I'm going to talk about why the Fed moved to QE, at least uh, what I've been able to glean from reading the transcripts, and how QE was supposed to work. We may get there, and then did it work, and we may or may not get there. We've only got 15 minutes, so we don't have a lot of time. So I'm going to try to do it as simply as I possibly can. So this is roughly where um, the date where the financial crisis started. Everybody dates it basically on August 9th of 2007. 
And you can see what initially what we did in terms of this, this is the Fed's balance sheet. And you can see the Fed's balance sheet remained relatively constant right up to Lehman. Lehman is where that September 15th of 2008 is where you take that real acceleration. Right? <clears throat> and so you see that the, the kind of gold area gets bigger, light gold area gets bigger, and that's lending uh, by the Fed to uh, mostly depository institutions. Most of that, a lot of it, is through something called the term auction facility where the Fed auctioned off uh, deposits in the Fed to banks. And simultaneously what they did is they, they shrunk that gold part. The gold part is basically um, the Fed's traditional portfolio of treasuries. And so what they were doing is basically sterilizing the effect of, of the lending that they were doing through the term auction facility on the total amount of uh, uh, the balance sheet. And in in particular on the size of the monetary base, which is basically the monetary base, you can think of it as the Fed's contribution to the total supply of credit. All right, so we're sterilizing that. And why were they doing that? Well, they were doing that because we were implementing monetary policy by controlling the federal funds rate. So the dark solid line up there um, is the federal funds rate target, the FOMC's target for the federal funds rate. The white line is the funds rate. Ooh, we're missing a D there. And the dash line is one month OIS rate, which is prediction of what the federal funds rate will be one month in the future. All right, so it's kind of prediction. And so what you see is that initially that little blip, that first blip there that you see in the white line is um, August 9th of 2007. It's exactly, these are daily data, that's that day. All right, and you see the funds rate then fell and then it went kind of back up. And then it kind of was more volatile, but it kind of followed along the target all the time. And you can see the OIS rate um, was basically predicting target changes in advance of the target. So it was predicting where the funds rate was going to go in advance of it. So it was basically kind of a leading indicator. And then we got to this period, unfortunately, this laser doesn't work, where they leveled it out at 2%, right? Um, and basically kept it there until you hit the vertical line. Well, actually, it kept it there after they hit the vertical line. The vertical line there is September 15th of 2008. So that's Lehman. And you see what happened there is the interest rate then, the federal funds rate then kind of fell below the target. It fell a lot below the target, right? And the other thing you see is it actually led the, o, the OIS rate. It was, it was actually occurring before the market was predicting it. And so what was happening at that period is we expanded the monetary base. So if we go back one slide, we see that we dumped, right? We started making a lot of loans. And what happened is excess reserves in the banking system grew tremendously, about 350 uh, billion. And the federal funds rate went to zero, right? It started heading towards zero. Interestingly enough, the last two target changes from 1.5% to 1%, and then again from 1% to zero, or between zero and 0.25 uh, basis points, they actually were debating that, right? Whether or not they should lower the rate in spite of the fact that what? Obviously, the rate was what? Not even, it was well below what they were debating they're going to go to, right? So I was arguing that in the paper, I kind of argued that it looks like the Fed was kind of, the FOMC was kind of out of touch with reality. 
The rate was already there, and then they were debating it. But that's how intensely focused they were on interest rate targeting as their primary tool. They were so focused on that, they didn't think about anything else. They didn't have, consider other options, other things they could do. And then we get to, um, we get to this point up here with that blue line. I'll change colors on you. It's the same slide. Um, a little longer period. This one goes almost to the end of uh, 2014 in terms of the data. Um, they started doing quantitative easing. So QE1 is, is March of 2009, which is when they decided they would purchase up to $1.75 trillion in uh, MBS, agency debt, and treasuries. Okay. And basically, we did that. Why? Well, because they were really worried about the economy. This is a quote from the transcripts of Janet Yellen. We're in the midst of a very severe recession. It's not likely to end any time soon. It was just, it was kind of just, there was a lot of fright going on. Well, that wasn't the best prediction she ever made because you know that the recession actually ended in what? Just three months later in June of 2009. Right. In fact, um, I'll tell the story, I guess. I was uh, in Hawaii, and when I go to uh, on vacation, I don't look at anything. I don't watch data. I don't watch TV. I don't read newspapers. I don't do anything. So I got back to the Fed, and I'm looking at the data, and I'm looking at things like interest rate spreads. And I'm seeing that these interest rate spreads, which skyrocketed on Lehman, Right, those risk spreads just went through the roof. I've got two here. I've got the spread between the one-month CD rate and the one-month Treasury, and the one-month LIBOR versus the one-month OIS rate, which is that predictor of the funds rate uh, uh, a month in advance. And both of those just just got astronomical heights. In fact, either some other spreads even went wider. Those spreads were always com already coming down, and you can see actually on this chart those two spreads. In the early part of 09, we're already back to their below, actually, in this case. Not all spreads were, but these spreads were. They were below their pre-recession, post-recession, um, post pre-Lehman levels. In other words, they were almost as low as they were back here, right? In the, in the early part of in 206, 207. All right, so the economy was already stabilizing, so I went down to the office of my buddy, Cletus Coughlin. You can call him. Don't blow. But if you had to, you could call him. I said, I think the recession's about over. And he said, what have you been drinking on your vacation? And he says, when? And I said, May. Well, that was a bad prediction. All right? it ended. There was lots of signs the economy was doing better. And so you've got to say, why did we do this? Why did, why did we feel the need? And that's why I was against it from the very beginning. I thought it was something that didn't need to do and all it was going to do is create a real problem because if you got lending out there, what happens? Lending is going to roll off as soon as they don't need it, right? right? You're making loans. They just evaporate. When you buy securities, you have to do what? You have to take an action. You have to sell them. And you can see we've been reticent to sell any securities. Very, very reticent to sell securities. I'm seeing, I'm not going to get much further than this. So how is it supposed to work? Well, there's a portfolio balance effect. So the idea is you buy a bunch of long-dated assets. 
you have to assume that markets are segmented across the term structure, which is kind of a weird assumption. So in other words, people who get in the 10-year rate don't want to be in the 8. They don't want to be in the 6. They want to be in the 10 or vice versa, right? They have a preferred habitat along the term structure. And so that should cause the, the rates on the things you buy, the treasuries, the MBS, and the agency debt to fall. But this will cause a portfolio balance effector because people, investors will then flee corporate, right? Right? So they, they're going to they're going to want to get into the they're going to want to get into the uh, corporate bonds and they're going to and, and equities reducing corporate bond rates and increasing equity prices. So that was the whole idea. This was going to cause this this portfolio substitution effect. Uh, the primary effect on treasuries, however, would would arguably come by affecting something else, namely the term premium. So the term premium. On a treasury, basically, or in an asset, basically, is the is the additional interest premium, interest rate, associated with the fact that long-term debt are more uh, risky than short-term debt. All right. So there's the term premium, and um, it could also work through the signaling channel. The idea that um, basically here's the idea: we're going to signal that we're going to keep long rates down or uh, low for a long period of time. And our short our short term rate down for a long period of time, and via the expectation hypothesis, which says this long rate is equal to the market's expectation of the short rate over the holding period of long term asset, long term rates will also go down. Right. Um, the reason um, the effect should happen through the signaling channel on the announcement. So the idea is the announcement is the whole ball of wax, because it's going to have the effect immediately because if they don't, investors will stand to make money by purchasing securities today and then selling to the Fed later at a higher price. So, so the price has to move kind of immediately uh, on the announcement. So everything's supposed to come on the announcement effect. And we got to move on. All right, so there's a little anomaly here that I tried to point out in one of the uh, things I wrote when I was at the Fed, and that is we're, we're using two things that have different theoretical foundation. So the signaling channel assumes the expectation hypothesis holds. If the expectation hypothesis holds, then there's essentially perfect substitutability in the limit across assets, perfect substitutability in the market. So there's perfect substitutability across the term structure in particular. Right? But if it's going to work through the portfolio balance effect, then the, the term structure has to be segmented. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't think you can have both of those things at the same time. You can't have your cake and eat, and eat it too. You know, you, you, one of them's got to be wrong, right? So I wrote a thing for in the, one of these little essays I used to write that says this is a time for the FOMC to be more transparent. In other words, tell us exactly why you're pursuing policies that have different theoretical, I, diabolically uh, opposed uh, th theoretical foundations at the same time. It just seemed to make no sense. Uh, did it work? No. Uh, so here, here are some events, and basically uh, these are, these are uh, major events. The first one is Q, uh, the second one is QE1. Uh, the third one is, is QE2. Um, 
And these are times when either there are major announcements about purchases, and what you should see is you should see rates fall immediately and remain down, right? And you don't see rates fall immediately and remain down. These are daily data, by the way. So even, for example, the one on November 25th of 08, most of that, it looks like it's all due on that day on this chart, but actually about half of that occurred before that announcement, right? It's the way that... And the same thing is true of the one, well, I'll have to, oops, the one that occurred on, um, on uh, August 9th of 2011. This is when the uh, Fed decided to use uh, a time period guidance. So they said they're going to keep the rate at zero into 2013. And this is when there were three dissents uh, at the FOMC meeting. And again, that looks like it's all occurring on that date, but actually it's about 60% of it occurs on that date, and the other 40% occurred prior to that date. So there's no evidence that we had this immediate effect and that it kind of was lasting. There's other things, too, that we could talk about, but I just ran out of time. Like, whoops, do I have a minute? Oh, ho, ho. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, um, so you, you basically, the whole idea here is that... Um, you see these things, they, they do something, and then you, it raises. Uh, uh, the interest rate doesn't even fall. It goes up. So I've got a separate paper that is still looking for a home. It's actually revised and resubmit now at the International Journal of Central Banking, um, which I just sent back about three months ago, where I look at all the announcement effects that people use in literature, and I ask them, are they identified? Identification means two things. Are they due to the, the QE information in the announcement? Right? And are they statistically significant? And the answer is, two of those appear to be due to the QE information announcement. You can make a plausible case that that's true, but virtually none of them are statistically significant, except the one on March 18th of, of 2009 satisfies both of those conditions. Right? But it's not very permanent and I'm out of time. Thank you very much. So for 15 minutes. Okay, thank you. Um, well, actually, I wish Dan had had more time to get through more of his paper uh, uh, because uh, it would make would have made my job easier. But anyway, um, so... He certainly has a, a provocative title for his paper. I, I must say, from my perspective, perhaps a more appropriate title might have been the following. Um, but uh, let me talk about Dan's paper for a second. I think this paper is, is truly impressive. I mean, it's very thorough. It's lucid, well-argued, passionate. He really uh, believes what he's saying and conveys that strongly. Um, it's, it, he really has a deep knowledge of the background of US monetary policy. Uh, before, during, and after the Great Recession, and that comes through. And I think it, it, many readers will find this a very persuasive paper. But I think there's no way to sugarcoat this. I just, I just don't agree. Um, uh, I, perhaps I'm the biggest cheerleader for QE in the world. I don't know. But uh, I'm going to take my uh, time here to explain why I disagree. Um, so basically uh, QE is now accepted at 
every central bank that I am in touch with. Um, initially, at first, and I was there, I was actually uh, the person that was, as Dan notes in his paper, I was one of the people that was advising the, Ben Bernanke on what to do uh, at the beginning of QE. And we met a lot of uncertainty and skepticism and whether this would work. Uh, and that's certainly true. And I think Dan captures the flavor of that very well. But this has moved on. Um, it's, it's now accepted as uh, a potent monetary tool by uh, a large majority of economists and officials at central banks around the world, at least to my knowledge. I, I welcome to hear counterexamples. Uh, there's just been dozens of studies. I did a literature review myself a few years ago uh, that find these effects. And it really, the debate has moved on to how best to do QE. And initially, we had fixed amounts of purchases that were sort of one-time deals. Uh, then uh, we moved to, well, no, a rate of purchases that was open-ended with certain conditionality applied. It could go up or down. Uh, and lately, some... Uh, economists and officials have talked about a, a different form, which would be to target actual interest rates on specific instruments at specific horizons. Uh, and th that debate has, has yet to play out. Um, now, it's true that in the financial press, you'll get a very different view. And if you look uh, even outside central banks and the, the narrow uh, range of economists who study this, I think lots of economists are still skeptical. And lots of the, the public and financial representatives are skeptical. Uh, and that's understandable. QE was unprecedented and involved huge headline numbers. The first QE in the US was $1.75 trillion, as Dan said, which was three times the size of the fiscal stimulus. So it caught everyone's attention. Of course, you can't really compare it to fiscal spending because it's not spending. It's just an asset swap. But the number was big. So despite this huge number, we got a rather lackluster recovery, and it took us um, six, seven years now to get to full employment. Very slow by historical standards. So the thought, uh, the general impressions arisen, well, it didn't do much. Well, but did it? Uh, let's look in hindsight. At the March 2009 FOMC meeting, Janet Yellen said that her models and the models of, the, of a chunk of the staff said that they should lower the Fed funds rate to negative 6%. That would be the optimal policy to get a decent recovery. Of course, that was not viewed as being possible. Now we're learning in Europe, maybe it is. But at that point, it just wasn't conceived of as being possible. So what we did was we did quantitative easing to try to lower longer term rates and get some effective stimulus to the economy uh, when the, when the short-term rate couldn't be lowered anymore. So now Fed staffers have done some studies, and they find that, of course, we didn't know how big the effects would be of what, what QE was doing at the time. There was nothing to go on. It had never been done uh, on that scale. Uh, but uh, now we, we, we estimate that that initial round of QE gave the economy a stimulus equivalent to a minus 1% Fed funds rate, which is something but way less than the model said we should get. And therefore, are we surprised we had a slow recovery? I would argue no. Uh, five years later, the Fed finally got, after several rounds of QE, to an equivalent federal funds rate of minus 2.5%. Not bad, but not 6%. Of course, by that point, you didn't really need 6 because you had recovered a lot. Basically, we've, we sort of finally caught up with where we should be, but we lost five years. 
So I think we really need to learn the lesson for the future, how to calibrate this policy and use it in the standard way we used to use interest rate policy. So um, I did, three years ago I did a, a literature review and I, I covered about four dozen studies of the effects of quantitative easing. Um, and of those 40 or so, 45 studies, uh, I found four that did not claim to find a significant effect of quantitative easing, three of which were by Dan, uh, and one was by John Taylor. And so uh, Dan's in good company, but um, I think most of the studies were on the other side. Uh, since then, I've seen, so that was three years ago, since then I've seen about two dozen more studies, all of which find significant effects, and are extending those effects to the Euro area and Japan, which are the latest adopters, and we find uh, effects there that amazingly are almost identical proportionally to what they were in the US and the UK. This is astonishing, and in, 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 those of you who are econometricians, that you should get similar results uh, across so many researchers and across so many countries in such a short order. Uh, I'm actually not aware of, of so much um, consensus so quickly, but that's my view anyway. Uh, so this, the, 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 the skepticism about QE says many things. Uh, I think they're not all consistent. Um, I'm not sure uh, that Dan believes in all of these either. I, I would argue the first two are not true and the rest have some element of truth but could be, could be overstated. Um, so how does QE work? Well, it's certainly famously true that Ben Bernanke said, uh, QE works in practice, but it doesn't work in theory. And um, in fact, you know, it isn't quite true because we had some theories of why, how QE could work, and Jim Tobin is probably most famously associated with those, where he talked about monetary policy operating in different assets. Uh, but that theory was never up to the standards of modern economic theories, uh, and most economists sort of brushed it aside. Moreover, based on Tobin's theories, the Fed and the Treasury tried something like QE called Operation Twist back in the early 60s. And the general consensus among the economist profession was that it didn't really do much. And this is what I learned in graduate school, and generations of economists have learned that in graduate school. And so we all imbibed that this wasn't going to work. And basically, people moved to efficient market theories, and, which said that the sort of government swaps of assets shouldn't really have effects, which I don't have time to get into, but that was the prevailing view. And the failure to predict exchange rates was another reason why economists moved that way. But already, uh, the, 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 the continuing existence of an equity premium and the continuing failure of interest rate parity and exchange rate equations should have alerted us already that there was still a problem with efficient markets, and maybe there was scope for something like this to work. Um, so uh, since QE has been launched, there's been some new empirical work. Uh, I think Roger Farmer at UCLA has probably the deepest, really deep theory of how QE works. It's, it's uh, hard for, for me to understand, but, and I'm not a theorist, but I point you to it if you really want to know. Um, I think uh, Vianos and Vila at London School of Economics are, are, have more of a, a medium-brow theory that, that financial economists seem to like. Um, anyway, um, I don't think it's the case uh, that you need strong assumptions for QA. I would argue it's the other way around. You probably, seems to me you probably need strong assumptions for it not to hold, uh, but I'm not a theorist. We could debate that, I suppose. This is how I think of quantitative easing. Um, the central bank goes in and it buys long-term assets, taking them off the market. 
So it reduces the supply of those long-term assets that the private sector can hold. If the private sector has a downward sloping demand for long-term assets, the price will go up as the supply is reduced. Now, we know that in bond markets, if the price of a bond goes up, its yield, i.e. the long-term interest rate, goes down. QE, therefore, lowers long-term interest rates by reducing the supply of long-term bonds. Now, if there are other bonds that are not being purchased but are somewhat similar, say corporate bonds, which have some similar characteristics to treasury bonds, then, as Dan said, people might uh, sell their treasuries to the Fed and move into the corporate bond market and push those yields down too, although by less probably. And that's what we find. We find that the uh, effects of QE are strongest on the assets being purchased, and, but they're next strongest on the closest substitutes, and they're weaker on assets that are even less close substitutes, which I think makes intuitive sense, but again, I'm not a theorist. Um, so what's, what about the evidence? Well, as I said, studies agree that QE reduces yields on bonds and close substitutes. It seems to spill over to stock markets and exchange rates. There's some evidence of direct macro effects on prices and output, uh, but that's harder to to demonstrate convincingly, and there's no counter evidence, though. Uh, and moreover, a, a colleague of mine looked back at Operation Twist in the 60s with higher frequency data and, and noted that it was quite small and short-lived, but within the short period it lived, it actually did have effects comparable to what QE seems to have now. Um, there's three channels, market calming, policy signaling, and portfolio balance. Uh, Market calming effect is temporary. When the market dies down, this effect goes away. The signaling effect is somewhat limited. There's a limit as to how long into the future you can convince people you'll keep rates at zero. Oh, but the portfolio balance effect, uh, which is about half of the total effect, doesn't seem to go away, doesn't seem to die down. You could even make a case it should increase as you buy more and more of an asset class. You're left with those holders who more and more inelastically hang on to it. But we haven't pushed it that far to see. Um, so one thing, though, is that uh, the, the, the chart that Dan showed, which showed bond yields going up and down as QE was happening, and so Q, they went down with QE, but then they eventually bounced up, uh, it's really hard to know what yields are, would have done in the absence of QE. But one thing we can point to is the term premium. Uh, we can actually construct estimates of the term premium by looking at the bond yield minus surveys of future interest rates. Those measures are at historic lows, uh, about 125 basis points below their normal average. And that is one lingering indicator that QE is having a long-lasting effect in bond yields. Uh, so it's one thing you can point to. Um, well, so in Dan's paper, he talks about a paper I wrote. Uh, I guess I won't take the time. Since he didn't raise it, I won't take the time to raise it. But I do have a response to to some issues he raised. Um, I'm not going to talk about liquidity trap again. I want to save time for discussion. I think there's an interesting issue. What is the Fed's uh, interest on reserves doing? Um, you know, is that, how, is that neutralizing this, uh, this increase in money? How do we think about that? I think that's an interesting topic, but it is kind of off topic, and we didn't get to talk about it very much. Uh, but let me just close with uh, unintended consequences. Um, are there? unintended consequences of QE. Um, and uh, in Dan's paper, he does talk about some. I'd like to, to make a few points. One is, you know, are, are high asset prices um, an unintended consequence? I would say no. I would say the whole point of QE is to raise asset prices. Uh, so it's not unintended. 
uh, once you raise an asset price, you lower the expected rate of return on that asset going forward. Um, so what described with bond yields, it's also true for stocks. Stocks have a given earnings. Uh, if you raise the stock price, that earnings is going to be a smaller percent of the stock price, so it's a lower rate of return. So QE lowers rates of return. That, that's bad for savers. But this is how monetary policy always works. The, the way monetary policy operates is it, it tilts the balance between saving and borrowing to keep the economy on an even keel. Fed's trying to, as Scott Sumner would, will say, uh, get a steady uh, output and, and, and price growth or nominal GDP growth, if you want a summary statistic. Uh, and to get that steady nominal GDP growth, it needs to move the rate of return around to get us on track. And QE is really not at all different uh, from conventional monetary policy in that regard. Um, credit allocation. This is a concern uh, many people. The, the Fed bought a lot of mortgage-backed securities, uh, which is unusual for the Fed. They normally only held treasuries. Uh, is this favoring that sector, allocating credit to the housing sector? Is that a problem? Well, maybe, but I guess I would turn that question on its head. Uh, why should central banks only buy government securities? Why should they allocate all their credit to the government? I would argue that a more neutral central bank policy might actually be to buy the market basket of all securities, uh, including equities, maybe even real estate investment trusts, whatever you can buy that's out there in the market in proportion to its, in a neutral basket that would be uh, in proportion to its market value. That sort of seems to me an obvious neutral policy. Uh, so I think that we need to have that discussion. Um, let's see, I'm running out of time. And the last point uh, is, uh, can the Fed control inflation? And is that a future? And I think the answer there is um, we're now up to seven years and um, don't see any inflation. I think we're lucky that we're going to finally get inflation up to target. Um, at some point in the future, could this be a problem? I just don't see that it's a problem the Fed doesn't have the tools to deal with. They can raise the rate of interest on uh, reserves. They can raise their overnight RRP rate. And they can sell these assets uh, if they need to. They, they can do any of these things, uh, and they will. And they can fight inflation. So I don't see the reason to be concerned. I mean, if there is inflation in the future, it will be because they made a mistake. Thank you. And finally, Scott Sumner. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, I have to say I don't know as much about the nuts and bolts of central banking as either Dan or Joe. So um, I'm going to sort of focus on a little more of the broader macro issues associated with QE and look at it from my perspective. First of all, I'd like to say that I thought it was an excellent paper. I learned a lot uh, from reading Dan's paper. I agree with much of the paper, although, as you'll see, I, I disagree in some important areas. Um, let me start off a few points I agree with. And Dan was critical of policy in 2008. He talked about sterilization. In my view, monetary policy was much too contractionary. And I think the sterilization thing needs to be emphasized. There's actually two types of sterilization that occurred. One is, uh, as some money was injected through some channels, other assets were sold to neutralize the effect. Dan talked about that. 
And also in early October 2008, interest on reserves was introduced, which had a contractionary effect and, and made the injection of new reserves less effective. However, um, Dan talked a little about early 2009 with Janet Yellen's prediction that uh, we were going to have a very bad recession, and three months later it uh, ended. Let me just point out that in my view, the, the Fed should be trying to prevent recessions, not predict them. So if the Fed is predicting bad times, it's doing something wrong. Now, what you could argue is that the, maybe the reason the recovery started three months later is exactly because the Fed started moving aggressively with QE. So I don't, I don't think that would be evidence, in my view, that the policy was necessarily a mistake just because the recovery occurred quicker than Janet Yellen predicted. You'd hope that would happen if you're going to engage in that sort of policy. Uh, I'd also point out that stocks hit a low in March 2008, very, very low low, of course, and that suggests that markets were very pessimistic about the economy at that time. So I think it was perfectly rational for the Fed to have a very bleak outlook for the US economy at that point. I mean, I think the stock market's not a perfect forecaster, but it sort of aggregates the wisdom of crowds. So second, um, what about the rationale used by the Fed? Uh, I agree with Dan that interest rates are often a misleading way of looking at monetary policy. But I, what I would say is, if the rationale employed by Bernanke and others was not in some way logical or justifiable, that's not necessarily a problem for QE. And the, the fact that there's some evidence that 10-year bond yields didn't move as the Fed hoped, in my view, also is not really evidence against QE. Rather, it's evidence against a certain transmission mechanism that is monetary policy working through interest rates. So here's my take on the relationship between interest rates and monetary policy. Let's say you have a very powerful expansionary monetary policy. How does that affect long-term interest rates? Well, it's actually hard to say. On the one hand, the liquidity effect would depress long-term interest rates from the monetary stimulus. But if it was really credible and expected to give a boost to the economy and inflation, then the income and Fisher effects would tend to raise long-term interest rates. So the net effect on interest rates is actually not that clear. And so the, the question, did it work? Uh, Dan said no. What I would say is, yeah, if, maybe if you look at interest rates, perhaps it didn't work as the Fed expected. But I think there's a lot of evidence that it worked in terms of the macroeconomy, the, the recovery beginning soon afterwards. And even more importantly, from my point of view, I'm sometimes called a market monetarist because I look at market indicators. So um, uh, as Joe indicated, foreign exchange rates and stock prices often moved as if QE was expected to have a stimulative impact on the economy. So these market indicators were suggesting that it was really doing something. Um, on the exit, uh, and towards the end of the paper, uh, Dan was critical of the way the exit occurred. There, there's one area where I do agree with him. I think that... Uh, you could argue that we should exit from QE before raising interest rates. Uh, so maybe back in December, the, a wiser move for the Fed would have been to gradually unwind the QE. And I think they were worried about market instability. But you know, as we've seen, after the interest rate increase, there's a lot of market instability from that as well. 
And, um, and I think that Dan pointed out that Japan had been able to unwind QE fairly rapidly 2006 without a lot of market instability. <clears throat> In some sense, I think debating QE is, is slightly missing the point because I view both QE and negative interest on reserves as two policy tools. They're just tools. They're both unconventional tools, but they're not policies in and of themselves. So the real debate should be over the target of the Fed. And what I would argue is that if you have a proper target, I, I happen to prefer nominal GDP level targeting, for instance, but whatever your target proposal, if you have a proper target, you probably don't need to do QE or negative interest on reserves. And if you're finding that you have to do these, in some sense, your policy has already failed to some extent. So this is a kind of a nuanced point that's hard to explain. Uh, in one sense, I view QE negatively. In one sense, I view it positively. The negative view is if you're doing QE, something's clearly wrong with monetary policy in a broader regime sense. But on the other hand, if you have stumbled into this monetary policy failure, as we had in late 2008, I do think QE makes things better than not doing QE in that kind of environment. Although I would argue without the interest on reserves, it would have been more effective. Now, next I'm going to talk a little bit about some sort of mild disagreements I have in various criticisms of QE. Not all of these will be necessarily specific things in Dan's paper. A few of the points I'm going to address are more just broad criticisms that are out there among media and pundits and other economists. Um, first of all, when you just look at the United States, obviously it doesn't look too good. We had, I would argue, the weakest recovery maybe in US history over any extended period. We've had just an extraordinary period of low real GDP growth. So that, that obviously doesn't look good if you're trying to sell QE. But on the other hand, if you look cross-sectionally, comparing the US to other countries, we've actually done better, especially, I think, an interesting comparison is US versus Eurozone. That's because the Eurozone was not doing QE early on. So recently, they've become more interested in that. And I think if you compare those two side by side, you see the US has done much better than the Eurozone, especially in terms of nominal GDP growth which is the variable that uh, the Fed can affect most directly. Real GDP, of course, also reflects supply side factors. Um, I've mentioned already that uh, markets responded, especially stock and foreign exchange markets, responded as if it was effective. Another point I often hear is that um, QE sort of artificially depresses interest rates. And I think this is a very misleading point. Um, you know, if, if inflation and employment are below the Fed's target, as they were throughout much of this period, you could argue that interest rates are still too high. They're artificially being held up at a high level. That seems very odd given how low they were, although as we've seen, Joe mentioned the, the predictions that a negative 6% uh, Fed funds rate would have been appropriate in that situation in early 2009. So um, if you think in terms of the sort of Vixellian equilibrium interest rate, the equilibrium interest rate that would give you macroeconomic stability, interest rates were probably still above that level. So in my view, they were not artificially depressed 
Rather, they were reflecting the weakness of the economy, which ironically, and this is an important point, was produced by earlier policy mistakes in 2008 of not being sufficiently stimulative. So the Fed sort of stumbled into a low nominal GDP environment, and the falling nominal GDP put downward pressure on the equilibrium interest rate in the economy. The Fed didn't reduce its actual interest rate quickly enough. And that's also a point Dan mentioned in that crucial period in the middle of 2008 when they held the rate at 2% for a period when actually they should have been cutting rates at that crucial period. Uh, I would argue that this here's another way of looking at this artificial point. So rates in Europe today are lower than in the United States and likely to remain lower for quite a long period of time. I think the 10-year bond yields in places like Switzerland and Germany are zero or slightly negative. Why is that? Well, I would argue it's because they had a more contractionary policy. They did less QE early on that pushed Europe into sort of a double-dip recession around 2011. And so the excessively contractionary policy, which was occurring in the US in 08, was repeated in Europe in 2011. And that led to such slow nominal GDP growth that they're going to be stuck with low interest rates much longer than us and lower levels than the United States. So if it really were true that QE artificially held down interest rates, how is it that America's ended up with higher interest rates than Europe? Still low, but not as low as in other countries like Europe and Japan. <clears throat> I don't think that QE needs to reduce interest rates to be effective. So, and this is a little bit of a contrarian view, I guess. Um, in my view, truly powerful, effective monetary policies mostly do not work through changing interest rates, but rather work through, and specifically, they don't work through lowering interest rates, but rather they work through raising the Vexelian equilibrium interest rate. And this is what you see when you have very powerful monetary stimulus, like the devaluation of 1933. So the actual interest rate didn't change much, but it created such bullish expectations about real growth and inflation that the equilibrium interest rate went up, the rate people were willing to pay to borrow because of these more bullish expectations. If that's the channel through which QE works, then we shouldn't be too discouraged by the fact that we don't see 10-year bond yields falling much when QE occurs. <clears throat> I would also argue that um, QE does not sort of distort other asset markets. Um, because I don't think it's working through interest rates, and I think interest rates are reflecting sort of the condition of the economy, I view the connection between QE and asset markets a little differently than most others. It's true that QE announcements tend to push up stock prices, but I don't think that's artificial. Rather, it's because it's perceived as helping the economy. And stocks do better when the economy is doing better. And furthermore, I'd even go more strongly. I would say it's not an artificial stimulus, but it's like the Fed is taking its foot off the economy. Prior to QE, monetary policy was artificially holding down the economy with depressed nominal spending. If you inject QE, you're getting closer to where monetary policy should be. The economy does better naturally. Stocks do better and other assets as well. Uh, for the same reason, I don't think it harms savers. Savers in America 
uh, over the next five years will probably do better than in Europe because we've done more QE earlier on. Um, it's already been pointed out, it doesn't tend to cause inflation if it's done in the right circumstances. Obviously, in other countries and different circumstances, printing money can be highly inflationary. But what I always focus on are what are the markets telling us? As long as the markets are telling us that inflation is likely to run below the Fed's 2% target, we're probably not uh, going to end up with high inflation. And if we start to move that direction, we now have early warning signals that we didn't have during the great inflation. We have things like tip spreads that'll tell us in real time if we're in danger of overdoing it. We didn't have that in the 60s and 70s. So we can raise interest rates quickly and bring inflation under control. Uh, distortionary effects, I don't worry too much about those if they're buying treasuries and even mortgage-backed securities because the, um, the treasury is basically uh, explicitly, I guess, with the GSEs backed a lot of these mortgage-backed securities anyway. So there's essentially no default risk on a lot of that portfolio. Um, and <clears throat> one final point uh, about sort of two opposite views that float out there. One is, is this monetizing the debt? In other words, is it helping the Treasury a lot? And the other is, is this a subsidy to banks? In other words, is this hurting the Treasury a lot, a lot of Treasury money going to banks? And I don't think either of those issues are that big. There might be a little bit of truth to either argument, but in terms of monetizing the debt, we're injecting interest-earning reserves that earn interest rates that is actually slightly above T-bill yields. So we're not really saving the Treasury any money. It's in that sense, we're not really monetizing the debt like a country that printed paper money to buy back bonds that were yielding 3, 5, 7% interest. That sort of thing would be monetizing the debt, not what we've done here. And in terms of subsidizing banks, um, I don't know whether there's no subsidy, but it's probably not as large as a lot of people think because the interest rates being paid on reserves are fairly close to market interest rates. Oh, I guess I'm out of time. Well, that's good because that was my last point anyway. Uh, thank you. I'm going to be opening up uh, the floor for questions in a moment, but I'd like to use my prerogative as host to, to ask a, a couple questions, if I may, myself, before I do that to get things started. I'll wait till our speakers are all properly wild, wired up so everybody can hear uh, the discussion. And when we do uh, proceed to, to questions from the floor, we'll have somebody coming around with a microphone. So please wait till uh, the microphone is in your hand before you ask your question. And please uh, start by identifying yourself, if you don't mind. And uh, uh, make sure you ask a real question and don't just make a comment uh, so that uh, <laughs> our speakers will have some opportunity to speak some more in response to what you say. All right, so I have, I have two questions I'd like to ask um, to, uh, to anybody, actually, if you don't mind. Uh, one is that it's been said that uh, it, uh, Scott had mentioned that uh, it doesn't really 
it's really not the interest rates that matter, that QE could, could in principle work through other channels that happen not to be those that were uh, used uh, by its advocates, uh, as Dan, uh, 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 which are the ones Dan stressed. But those studies, and this goes to Joe uh, in particular, all these studies of the effectiveness of, of QE, I've reviewed your paper and some of the studies themselves, and almost all of them stop with the question, what did interest rates do? So if, it, if we really don't care what interest, interest rates did per se, that begs the obvious question, what is the evidence concerning the effects of these policies on the macroeconomic variables of ultimate concern, like the unemployment rate? Uh, Joe, could you speak about what, what you know to be the case here? Sure. I, I would say the, the studies focus on the financial market effects, so that it's more than just interest rates, it's stock prices, exchange rates. But I agree with you, it stops there. Uh, there are a few studies that look directly at effects to the macroeconomy, but it's so hard to know what the counterfactual is. It's so hard to know what would have happened you know, if you did something different. Uh, you, you have, the problem with these studies is, is, is being convincing to someone who's a skeptic is going to be hard. But the ones that have tried have found effects. Now, I guess you'd probably argue, well, but they were trying to find positive effects, and I couldn't deny that. So. I don't find that part of the literature very persuasive. I do find the financial part very persuasive. Then the third branch of the literature says, well, given the financial effects, let's use our existing models of how the economy works and see what it would do. And those always find big effects. My second question, and, and after that, I'm going to ask Dan if he has any general remarks he'd like to make in response to the comments, too. So I, I, I realize I almost neglected to do that. Sorry, Dan. Um, the second question has to do with uh, interest on reserves, which Scott alluded to it, and, and so did Dan. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> it seems to me important to distinguish between quantitative easing as a general policy. We all agree that monetary policy involves buying, increasing quant the quantity of money, and that sometimes that's called for. But here we're talking about trillions of dollars worth of new base money. And, of course, uh, we know that uh, once the Fed started paying interest on reserves, which was in August 2008, that banks did something they seldom did before. They, they held on to excess reserves, and indeed, they held on, according to most studies, to almost every new dollar of excess reserves, all these trillions. Uh, that is, they added that much to their excess reserve holdings. So isn't it, it at least fair to say, as a criticism of the Fed's conduct and of its theories, that to some extent, at least, it seems to have been a little bit confused because it had one policy that was discouraging banks from using the new reserves that were being created, and another policy that, because of that fact, had to create vast amounts of reserves in order to achieve uh, any given effects. Uh, thoughts about this? Joe? Well, um, Dan? Yeah, I'll jump in, yeah. but anyone. I mean, if part of the interest on reserves thing was initially because they were targeting the funds rates. That's very true in the transcripts. They used that in, because they were trying to keep the funds rate up closer to the target, so they paid interest on reserves. In fact, at one point, they were paying a percentage point to try to keep them up. They also had the Treasury issue debt that it didn't need to issue and put those balances on the Fed in order to reduce the size of the balance sheet. So it was all aimed 
at trying to keep that funds rate up to the target level, but of course it was, it was unsuccessful in doing that. Later on, of course, they became very concerned with the amount of, of excess reserves out there. They became very concerned about the, the uh, impact of that on money creation if all of those excess reserves would become required reserves. Right? And the only way you become required reserves is by making loans and investments right, at the banks, and then you have excess become required. And the reserve multiplier, basically, or the uh, checkable deposit multiplier is about 10 or 11. So every dollar of, of excess reserves goes down a dollar, right? The money supplies goes up $10, not even counting the currency component, just the checkable deposit component. So you can see that when you're holding massive amounts, it doesn't take all of that much of a decline in excess reserves to create a tremendous increase in the money supply. And, and Bernanke talks about that on a couple occasions in the transcripts and elsewhere. Um, you know, so part of the reason was they really wanted to impound those excess reserves. And then you can argue, well, they really didn't increase the supply of credit more broadly in the market, just among banks, basically, because you're impounding it all. Well, yeah, and let me just follow up on the, the period after 2008 when the rate got down to a quarter point. So I think the Fed would make two arguments. One is that uh, a quarter point is not that much. And the second is there are lots of cases, or at least a few cases, where even without interest on reserves, you had these bloated reserves sitting in a banking system. Japan in the 90s, uh, the United States in the 1930s. So we could have been in the same situation, perhaps without that quarter point. On the other hand, I would make an argument in the other direction. One should never say it's only a quarter point, because since interest rates are not a reliable indicator of the stance of monetary policy, a quarter point could mean a lot, and I'll give you a few quick examples. The policies that increased demand for reserves in 1937 only raised short-term interest rates about a quarter point. Today, those policies are viewed as being one cause of a serious setback in recovery from the Great Depression, higher reserve requirements, basically. That only boosted rates about a quarter point. Europe only boosted rates by a half a point in 2011. They went into a double-dip recession that threatened to blow up the whole Eurozone didn't, but it was a big, big problem for Europe. And there was a very small interest rate in, increase in Japan around 2000, 2001 that created sort of a double-dip recession there. So when economies are weak, quarter points can be a lot. And so I, I still think the Fed underestimates the mistake even after 2009. Now, I think the Fed itself would admit that going back, they wouldn't have raised rates in October 2008, because Ben Bernanke has said they should have cut rates in September in his memoir. So they realized they were too tight in late 2008. But I also think that whole policy of interest on reserves, 2009, 10, forward, in retrospect, was a mistake. Can I just, Joe? Yeah. I, so I agree with uh, Dan and Scott about 2008 um, and what was going on. And, and, and it seemed crazy that they were so reluctant to ease sooner and why they were trying to hang on to that target. But I think that my reading, and maybe you were still there, Dan, too, but uh, well, I didn't hear that the quarter of a point was designed to restrain money growth. What I heard was that quarter of a point was designed to give banks and money market funds a little bit of revenue to help cover the cost of running deposits that yielded zero. And that you know, they, were, they were basically taking deposits from customers at zero and investing at the Fed at a quarter of a point. That's a pretty small margin. 
and but it was meant to be a little bone to the banks and the money market funds so that they could make it you know cover a little bit of their expenses and we thought if we if we made it literally zero they'd be losing money on all these deposits and it would be not productive in a financial crisis to do something that would possibly bankrupt some money market funds i think that fear was over by 2010, and I think Ben Bernanke now thinks it was a mistake not to cut that interest rate all the way to zero. And we're now seeing in Europe, they are going to minus. The European Central Bank is charging three-tenths of a percent, minus 0.3% on three-quarters of a trillion in reserves. It's astonishing. Dan, take a couple minutes to respond to. Right. Well, I'm going to respond to uh, to a thing that Joe said and a thing that Scott said, and then I'm going to do a, a shameless plug plug for myself that Scott made uh, possible. All right. So the um, so the first thing is Joe is right. I mean, there's all these studies out there of the effectiveness of QE, um, and they do find uh, statistically significant effects. But uh, and I'm going to disagree with something that Scott just said, but these effects are typically tiny, all right? So for example, Hamilton and Wu find a statistically significant effect, 10 basis points on 10-year treasuries, all right? Um, uh, Joe's own work that I critique um, in another paper basically found, what was it, 38 basis points, uh, depending on how you cut it, slice it or dice it, on the 10-year treasury rate, and as Joe said, when you look at other securities like corporates, th those effects become smaller. And so my view is, really, you think 10 basis points or 30 basis points cut in long-term rates is going to generate a ton of spending or rush the asset price? It has to be something else. It has to be something else that's causing it. It's, it's not that. All right, so I agree there's statistically significant effects out there, but statistical significance, eh, who cares? If it's tiny, it's tiny. You can't get around the fact that tiny's tiny. Um, so, the, so the thing that Scott said that I want to respond to is he said, well, you know, we did QA, QE in March of 2009, and maybe that's why the recession ended in June. Well, do you really, first of all, do you really think that monetary policy affects that, that fast? That it has that kind of impact that quickly? But I agree that QE did, in fact, produce the end of the recession, but it was the QE that began on September 15th of 2008 when we finally increased the amount of, of credit in the credit market by, by making a lot of loans, not by buying securities. In fact, that's what I was arguing to my colleagues in, in the early part of 2008, is we ought to just go out and dump interest rate targeting completely and go out and increase the supply of, of, uh, of the of credit in the credit market by increasing the monetary base. They asked me how much. I said 600 billion. What? And I was a piker. I, you know, didn't want to increase it too much. But it, that's what we. That's the policy we needed to follow. We followed it in September, and the recession ended not three months later, but nine months later. Uh, risk spreads came down dramatically because we, did, we followed the right policy. We abandoned the interest rate targeting, not because we wanted to abandon interest rate targeting, but because we were forced to. We, we could no longer sterilize. If we could have sterilized, we would have. In fact, they tried very hard to sterilize. They just couldn't. All right, so the shameless plug is on, on um, monetizing the debt. 
So if you go to my webpage, I just wrote a piece that I published. I don't blog because I don't like to blog. I, I like to take time and write because I just need to really think. So I wrote a piece titled, Has the, Is the Fed Monetizing the Debt? And I explained, first of all, what monetizing the debt is, at least in the way I interpret it, which I think is, of course, the correct way. And, and then I make an argument that suggests, well, yeah, it's possible. It's possible to think of it that way. All right. Can I turn? Oh, sorry. I agree, I agree with Dan, but can I just elaborate? Because I agree with Dan that these effects are small. I think that's important to understand. When we were trying to calibrate the first QE, I had to look at the research such as it was and try to, to say, what is the range? And I think in hindsight now, the results were at the low end of the range, but in the range, but at the very low end of the range I had found. As you say, I think uh, we said QE1 maybe was worth 50 basis points in the 10-year yield. I think Wu Hamilton is 40 basis points in my memory for QE1. But maybe there's very, because everyone, every study has multiple estimates and then they have their favorite one. Um, but, but that's a small effect, really. Uh, and that's why my first slide said that this massive QE1 was only worth 1% on the Fed funds rate. So yes, so the implication is uh, if we have to do massive amounts of this to make it work, and is that politically feasible? And I guess that would be where I would say maybe, maybe Dan, you would say it's just not going to be feasible. Well, OK, let me jump back in just real quick, because we want to get some, uh, some questions here. I argue QE wasn't effective for two reasons. One is that when I look at the data that people use, I find mistakes or I find things in error. And when I, when I do it carefully, as I, carefully as I can possibly do it, I find that, by and large, a lot of those things just vanish. All right? The other thing is that the theory behind it it doesn't have any strength, right? So this idea that it affects term premiums, it just doesn't make sense to me because term premium is determined by two things, right? Investors' uh, aversion to risk, right? That's one thing. And the duration of the asset, which is the, the degree to which the asset changes with interest rates, which is a function of the asset, nothing else. So you got, mon you got risk aversion of the individual investors. You got the duration of the assets, both of which are independent of policy. So why should the risk premium change just because we're going in and dragging a bunch of long-term treasuries out of the market? If you've got the same investors in there, then the premium of a, of a three, of a, let's say, a 10-year bond over a three-year bond should be exactly the same because it has the same duration in both of them. And we have the same investors who have exactly the same risk aversion they did before. Nothing changed. Right? So I argue the theory on which it is based is vacuous, right? and therefore you can't argue that it had a, a, an effect. Now, I do think that zero interest rate policy did have an effect. It did distort rates. But there are two different things. Right? One is, did you do this stuff here and that do it? Or did you keep interest rates low for seven years? And did that distort the market? I do believe that distorted the market. Okay, we better stop uh, and give our, our audience a chance. I see uh, Warren has his hand up, so uh, Warren, you get the first word from the floor. Thank you, Warren Coates. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for a very interesting and stimulating discussion of the issues. Uh, there's one huge elephant in the, in the room, however, that Scott touched on and, and brushed aside. If you think of the financial context of 2008 
It was a housing market that had collapsed. It was mortgages that were of uncertain value. TARP was meant to stabilize the value of mortgages to save all those financial institutions holding them. And then the Fed comes along and buys a whole bunch of them up and impounds the money by paying interest on excess reserves so that the money supply doesn't grow. To me, the whole game was supporting the financial market. Is there a question? Yes. yes. What is your reaction to that? <laughs> you... Yes. That's cheating war. Does anyone want to react to that? I, I think that's a good argument. I think the answer is yes. I would just say I, I think a quarter of a percentage point, we just assumed that was close enough to zero that it didn't make any economic difference. Now, it sounds like some people don't agree with that. And um, I, was, I was willing to contemplate the idea that we were wrong until this year when Europe has proved we were right because they have gone below zero, and it's not doing major things. But there's a, there's an, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe there's another argument here that just the massive liquidity injections into the banking system were clearly trying to rescue the banking system, but the reluctance to cut rates below 2% after Lehman failed was like, well, Main Street doesn't need rescuing Wall Street does. I mean, I personally think the Fed is idealistic, but if someone's very cynical, they could look at that and say the Fed was trying to rescue the banks, but not trying to stimulate the economy. And so I, I mean, in that sense, I understand your point, although I, your technical point about Europe is well taken, that the negative rates haven't made that much difference yet. Oh, boy, we've got a whole bunch of hands. But I want to say that one of those in the back there is next. I may be wrong. I apologize. But with luck, we'll get to everybody. And I don't know which hand I saw first. That's uh, it's Craig Torres from Bloomberg. Uh, two questions. One to Dan um, or Joe. Uh, if credit's so important, why haven't we seen more central banks um, use credit intermediation as a tool, such as a commercial paper funding facility or the asset-backed security funding facility that the Fed use? That seems just way out of vogue right now. And then a question for Scott. If if really aggressive monetary policy raises the neutral rate, how come neutral rates are low around the world right now, zero or lower? Um, I think those facilities actually were probably somewhat useful during the early during the uh, early stages, um, because we did get you know we had a financial. Uh, 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 event that is the largest since the Great Depression, basically. So with Lehman going under, that was a huge thing. So, and even before that, I think having having the um, those those things served a purpose. But once risk spreads got down and markets stabilized, I I just don't see the need for them. I, so I don't see the need for their continuance. So I think the Fed did that right. They they did it for a while and then they got out of the business. And I I think. For good reason, I think that was that was correct. Yeah, the Bank of England has a a funding for lending facility which uh, they instituted, and it was not in a panic. I, I agree on the panic stuff, but it, it, I'm just going forward to now. You're talking about now. Um, it's obviously not about panic. Uh, what it is, I looked into this, and um, I, I have to think some more about it. But they're actually giving the banks a hefty subsidy if they make new loans above a certain existing level. It's uh, like three quarters of a percentage point or a percentage point, something not trivial. 
uh, and they're finding, I think it's a percentage point, and they're finding that three quarters of that is being passed into lower rates to the borrowers, and one quarter is being kept by the banks. And this is a direct fiscal drain. I'm surprised that they can do this. Uh, I don't have any, uh, uh, it is credit allocation, I imagine. Well, it's fiscal policy. It's fiscal policy. It's kind of odd, but uh, there's no reason to think it wouldn't help stimulate spending, but maybe raises other issues. Yeah, on the uh, question about um, monetary policy and interest rates. So in 1997, Milton Friedman was discussing Japan, and he said, low interest rates are not easy money. They're a sign that money has been tight. Has been tight. What did he mean by that? So let's say you switch to a permanently tight money policy in Japan in the early 90s. What would happen from a permanently tight money policy? What would it look like? Well, what it would look like is initially interest rates would go up for a brief period, say in the early 90s, and then this would drive nominal GDP growth lower. In Japan's case, it drove nominal GDP growth all the way down to zero after the early 1990s for decades. And as nominal GDP growth falls to zero, over the extended period of time, a tight money policy actually leads to lower interest rates. Conversely, a hugely expansionary monetary policy like the U.S. had in the 60s and 70s, eventually leads to higher interest rates, not lower. So the weird thing is because the initial effect of monetary policy pushes interest rates one way, everyone gets confused where the more important longer-term effect push it the other way, and they start misdiagnosing the stance of monetary policy. So your question presupposed that policy has been clearly expansionary in the last five, seven years because rates have been near zero, and in fact, that's probably more an indication monetary policy has been too tight. On the, one other quick point, people also mentioned the QE, but we only do QE when we get to zero as a result of a previously too expansionary monetary policy. The one country, the one developed country that never did QE in the last decade is Australia. They had the most expansionary monetary policy of any developed country. Their interest rates never fell to zero because they had more... Uh, stronger nominal GDP growth, and as a result, they did no QE. So it's an Alice in Wonderland world where monetary policy that looks tight is often very, very easy, and policy that looks easy is often very, very tight. Question right here. I'm Justin Merrill with uh, Commonwealth Asset Management. A quick comment on interest and reserves. Uh, I'm doing some research on the history of them. The uh, Federal Reserve isn't the first central bank to use them. Uh, I think the Royal Bank of Australia has been using them for about 25 years. But the difference is that uh, they use an interest rate corridor, whereas when the Fed implemented it, they set the deposit rate equal to the Fed funds rate, and this decimated the uh, interbank lending market and had other financial effects. But my question uh, for Joe, you talked about your your idea of the transmission mechanism as being on the uh, the assets that are purchased. Um, my my question is, don't you think that the uh, the liability side in serving uh, money demand is probably more important than the asset side of the balance sheet? Uh, even though, of course, they occur simultaneously. But uh, from a Wixellian perspective. Uh, the, the, it's the money demand in the disequilibrium that is more important than which, which assets are purchased. I mean, I, I agree with your point that a neutral uh, would be a, a, a broad basket of assets, but 
Um, and you talked about uncovered interest rate parity. Uh, you mentioned that briefly, but uh, I also see that as an indication of monetary disequilibrium. Joe? Oh, oh one, uh, so about the macroprudential policies, or um, how do you square your institute's position? I don't know if you agree, but I'm, I'm guessing you do, with macroprudential policies and QE, since QE pushes investors out on the risk curve, whereas macroprudential's kind of hemmed, hemming in risk. So it's kind of countering each other. Okay, so uh, start with your uh, first question. I think the whole, the way we thought about money and the economy uh, applies when, um, in a world in which the interest rate is, the equilibrium interest rate is significantly positive and there's no interest paid on money, and so there's a huge gap between all our financial assets and money, which, which uniquely doesn't pay any interest. And so it's the whole, you know, shoe leather cost models of economizing on that, that cash, and then that gives our intuitions for how money works. I think we're now moving to, we are moving to a new world in which money pays a competitive rate of return that is exactly equal to uh, comparable maturity assets and safe assets. So that's a different world. Uh, then it really is, it's got to be on the asset side. Um, so I think we need to rewrite the textbooks or think about this. Or we can go back to the old world, but I don't think we're going to. Um, uh, so and I think this is just a, an issue for, for the future. But I, I, I agree with you about the past, but I think that we're just not in that world anymore. For example, the, the Bank of Japan in its first QE printed a lot of money and it paid zero on them, but market rates were zero too, and it bought very short-term government bonds. And the private sector said, well, I really don't care whether I have a short-term claim on the Bank of Japan or a short-term claim on the Ministry of Finance. They're the same thing to me. They're highly liquid, there's no risk. Um, and so the Bank of Japan blowing up its balance sheet entirely in short-term government debt had no effect on the economy. And that's why it was easy for them to undo it, as Dan pointed out, because the market didn't care. Um, so I can't really, I don't know, I'm not sure how to answer your question about interest rate parity, but on the other question about macroprudential, let me just say, um, I think there it's a question of the right tools for the job. I absolutely think that regulators should have the ability to uh, set good standards and possibly countercyclical standards for debt-to-income ratios to borrowers or loan-to-value ratios in, in, in lending, at least for, for systemically important institutions. You could imagine doing that, and that would seem to me to be the way to go, and have monetary policy really separately worry about nominal GDP. And I think that separation works nicely, and I think QE belongs with the nominal GDP stuff. And... I don't think it's, um, it's caused a lot of risk. Uh, I don't see the risk. I mean, people worry about the risk, but I don't see it. On behalf. Yeah, no. Go for uh, it. If I could just interject one quick thing on interest in reserves. I don't know if you know that the Federal Reserve Act framers toyed with paying interest on reserves way back then. Uh, they ultimately didn't do it, probably because the New York banks would have thrown a fit. It would have competed with them. Uh, next question, uh, right up here. Hi, my name is Marcelo. I'm with the Mexican Embassy. And my questions are two. Um, when do you see um, quantitative easing or the future of quantitative easing is currently is going? And um, financially, for, for yourself and your own portfolios, what, have you, what steps have you taken knowing that 
the, the current market situations. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get a gauge here of like, you know, you all look really smart and clearly know what you're talking about, but where, where have you placed your money, right? <laughs> That's what I want to know. Well, thank you. So where's it going in terms of QE? Well, I, I think uh, Joe said it now. You got the, the rest of the world has adopted uh, QE um, for, for good or ill. And so it's, it's going to be this uh, enormous gorilla that, that uh, is going to be uh, very, very hard to rein in. Um, and then you've got uh, some people like uh, John Cochran who are saying, well, it's great because that banks will be holding a lot of liquid assets and then we'll have fewer bank failures and that kind of stuff. So you get you can you know get people to make arguments in favor of it, and um, so people like me out here crying in the in, a, in the wilderness are not likely to have uh, a very very marginal impact on it. So I'll, I'll just stand on what I think is true, and that is the theory behind it is is weak. There's no reason to to believe it should have had an effect, and the evidence is equally weak. And I'm always I'm about evidence. I want to know. I'm about facts. And if you look at the facts, um, even if you're generous to the facts, uh, I think you find that they are, they are pretty weak. It's a, it's a weak story to tell. But that doesn't mean it's going to die anytime soon. And that doesn't mean that if the economy starts turning negative, we're not going to go out and buy yet more. Because uh, we're very likely to do that, actually. I thought the question was asking for your investment advice. Oh, you're my investment Don't advice? Don't you want to know how much money they have before no, you ask them where you, they, yeah. you should put it? No. <laughs> uh, I, won't, I do the right thing. I don't give investment advice. If I was doing it, I'd be richer than I am. Well, I, I perhaps foolishly put out a blog post uh, two weeks ago with my colleague Olivia Bonchard um, in which we argued that um, stocks are not overpriced, uh, or not obviously overpriced, um, and we based it all on a comparison over the past 10 years. And we said, look, in 2005, um, we don't recall widespread concern about stocks being overpriced. And in fact, if you look at people who bought stocks in 2005 and held them continuously to last year, they made quite a lot more money than people who had bought bonds at that point. Uh, and uh, although people who bought bonds at that point have done well too, uh, but stocks have done even better. So what about going forward? Well, if you look at uh, earnings uh, price ratios you know, compared to real bond yields, uh, if anything, it's bonds that look much worse than stocks. So uh, you know, whether that will continue, I don't know. But you can't just look at a, a PE ratio for stocks in isolation. You have to look at what else you're going to put your money in. And um, to me, it looks like the worst investment would be bonds. I'll tell you one thing I have looked at. So look at... Look at household net worth as a percent of dis uh, personal disposable income. And what you'll find is in the 90s, it went up like this, the late 90s, and it peaked out. And of course, we had something called the dot-com bubble. Then it fell all the way back down to kind of a trend line. You think about a trend line as it's kind of moving up slowly over time. And then, of course, we had that what? We had the house price bubble. And it did what? It went up, and it got actually above that peak again. If you look at it right now, guess where we're at? We're back at that peak. And it's driven by two things, basically. Equity prices and house prices. So the advice is... Do what I did and get buy out of the stock. I got out of the stock market three months buy ago. Buy and then sell. <laughs> Scott, you want to add any third piece of advice? No. <laughs> like well, um, 
I have $10 billion, but I'm not going to release my tax return soon. <laughs> You'll have to take my word for it. <laughs> but trust me, I have $10 billion. So anyway, how did I get there? Well, I agree with Joe. Um, uh, the, the low interest rates, in my view, and I've had this view for quite a while, are a new normal. I expect this for the rest of my life. Not this low. In interest rates will go up. But I think they'll cycle from zero to two or something instead of three to six percent is the new normal. And that means asset prices have a new normal that's higher than we're used to. And I've been saying for quite a while that we'll be seeing many, many more bubble predictions in the next few decades than we saw in the 60s, 70s, and 80s because these low interest rates will create asset prices that people just think are unrealistic based on their lifetime experience. We have time for one more question. If it's pointed and precise, so our speakers don't, right, right here in the middle. I'm sorry for all the people I missed, uh, but we'll have a little reception afterwards, so you can buttonhole our speakers afterwards then. If, if I think there's try. one more elephant, perhaps, in the room, and um, because of low rates, I think one of the best papers out was William White's Ultra Low Rates and Unintended Consequences, and I think he spelled out exactly what has happened. So if we look at low rates both here and abroad, we've allowed one could argue credit bubbles like Sweden, a great article in Bloomberg today, asset prices there, uh, credit bubbles, consumer credit everywhere else. McKinsey put out the debt not so much deleveraging in, I think it was Q1 2015. So we've added about 38% to global debt. Global debt's grown at twice the rate of GDP. At some point, you know, debt is forward consuming what we may or may not earn in the future. We've added debt at twice the rate of global income. How do you see that playing out? And if this indeed with the commodity bubble, one could say crashing right now with oil problems, what do we do in the next go round? And can adding debt to debt get us out of this as now people like Summers are, are clamoring for more fiscal spending and even more debt? Anybody want to tackle well, that? Well, I, I, I mean, I agree. We're just, uh, we're trying to, we're trying to uh, credit our way out of this thing. And I think it's a huge mistake. I also have trouble with this idea that interest rates are kind of in an equilibrium law. So I think of the Fisher equation, you know, which is basically the nominal rates equal to the, the real rate plus the expected rate of inflation. Now, the Fisher equation doesn't hold. It's not, like an e it's not like an equation that always holds. It's an equilibrium kind of expectational equilibrium condition. So you'd expect it that if the market can forecast the, the average inflation rate over a long period of time, let's say, you know, seven, ten years, then you would expect the, the, that that equation should kind of hold pretty much on average over that period of time. My proxy for the real rate, you can proxy the real rate a ton of ways, but one way to proxy it is by the real growth rate of the economy, the long-run trend of growth rate of the economy, right? real growth rate of the economy. So that'd be, you know, we'd like it to be 2%, at least maybe 3%, right? And you got a, you got a, you got a 2% inflation uh, target. So if you hit your target, that's going to be 2%. So it seems to me that, God, the equilibrium, it, in my world, the equilibrium nominal interest rate should probably be something in neighborhood of, of 4% or higher uh, if you could achieve a 2% inflation rate and a 2 or 3% uh, real growth rate of the economy. I, does, does that mean that we expect in the, the new normal is now where we're at, does that mean the economy is going to be growing at, you know, 1% or half percent? 
Is that, or does that mean that inflation is actually going to be negative? We're not going to, we're not going to get where we're going. I mean, I just, I find that, I hear this argument all the time, and I just, somebody explained it to me in terms of the Fisher equation, or the Fisher equation is just dumb. I don't know. It's the great stagnation, Dan. <laughs> well, yeah, we heard about that. Back in the 60s, actually. Sorry, sorry. Let, Joe, Joe and, and, and uh, Scott get a word in on this. A couple, a couple points of color on, on what Dan said. Um, I think one, one thing that seems to have happened is that um, desire for safe assets relative to risky assets seems to have increased. And even if the rate of return on risky assets is related to the growth of the economy and is significantly positive, uh, you could have a shift in preferences either caused by you know, the experience of recovering, the experience of, of the recession making you scared or government regulations forcing you to hold safer stuff, uh, pushing down the, that rate. Um, in terms of the leverage thing, I, I absolutely think leverage is the enemy. That's what I learned from the recession is leverage is the enemy and we need to really make sure, clamp down on it when it's excessive. But debt growth isn't necessarily a sign of leverage. It could be. But if it's some country where no one had ever borrowed to buy a house and they can now borrow 50% of the price of the house and that debt goes up, that's a good thing. If it gets to 100% of the price of the house, then it's a bad thing. So we need to, you can't just look at one aggregate number and say, it's bad. Scott, the last word. Let me build on what Joe said and, and get at the policy question by talking about China a little. I think China is a perfect example of a country that needs easier money and much, much tighter credit. So I'd really like to draw a distinction between those two. You can have easier monetary policy to get a little bit faster nominal GDP growth and have much, much tighter credit in an economy where there's moral hazard on steroids because of the way their credit or their banking system is set up. And so I think we have to disentangle those two things. And, and, and a lot of critics of QE and so on, I think, have, have mixed up easy credit and easy money, and they're really two fundamentally different issues. Folks, that's all we have time for officially. Thank you all very much. There is a reception.